Go ahead and turn your turn in your Bibles to Second Peter chapter one, and we're going to return to the passage that we began looking at last Sunday. And I just kind of teased you with it a bit, and uh, someone even said, "Is that it? Is that all we're going to do? Is that is that the sermon on that passage?" And no, that was just kind of an introduction uh, to prepare our hearts for what we're going to look at today, and we're going to do a proper exposition of this passage. Um, first Peter, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. Let me read it for us as we begin. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling in choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble." For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Father, again, thank you for the privilege that we have to study your word together. Thank you for the confidence that we have um, that your spirit, who inspired Peter to write these words, is the same spirit that indwells us and can illuminate us now to understand what these words mean and then help us to apply them to our lives. Lord, thank you for the privilege that I have of being uh, standing here behind this pulpit, uh, being able to uh, make this passage uh, perhaps more understandable and applicable. Lord, would you help me to serve you well and serve this precious flock well, and uh, we'll do this all for your glory, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, October is traditionally the month that we remember the Protestant Reformation, which was really the pivotal moment in the history of the church back in the 15 and 1600s. And the flashpoint of the Reformation was when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of his church in Wittenberg, Germany, protesting the corrupt sale of indulgences in the Catholic Church. And this was just one of many works that the church in that day, in Luther's day, said a person is required to do to have their sins forgiven and to have the assurance that they will spend eternity in heaven. And after trying for years to earn his salvation by human effort, Luther began studying and then teaching the book of Romans And he came to the conclusion that the church had diluted and distorted the gospel by adding works to faith. And so he, along with the other reformers, adamantly affirmed that a person is saved by faith alone, yet they were equally adamant that faith that saves is never alone. You may have heard it put this way, we are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. I think that is one of the clearest, most helpful statements that ever came out of the Reformation, and it's based on what the Bible teaches, particularly what Paul said to the believers in Ephesus. And I want to invite you to turn back to Ephesians chapter 2, a familiar passage um, to all of us, I assume. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through what? Faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of what? Works, so that no one may boast. Now, listen to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So, very basic principle here, based on these three verses. A person is not saved by good works, but they are saved by for good works. You may remember me using a simple math equation equation to illustrate what um, Paul was saying here. Uh, the Catholic Church essentially teaches that faith plus works equals salvation. Faith plus works equals salvation. 
Whereas the Bible teaches faith equals salvation plus works. Do you see that? Faith equals salvation plus works. In other words, works don't come before you're saved. They come after you're saved. And so we need to be careful to maintain a biblical balance between the role of faith and the role of works in the process of our salvation. Now, when we use the word salvation generically, it's really an overarching term for three specific acts or phases or aspects of Uh, the process of salvation. There is justification, there is sanctification, and there is glorification. There is a past aspect of our salvation, there is a present aspect of our salvation, and there is a future aspect of our salvation. Let me define for you these three aspects of salvation. Number one, justification. Justification is a one-time event that occurs at the moment of our conversion when God applies the substitutionary work of Christ to our account. He forgives our sin and declares us righteous and blameless before him. That's justification. Sanctification is the gradual, ongoing process that begins the moment we're justified, whereby the Spirit of God sets sets us apart from sin and grows us and matures us and conforms us more and more into the image of Christ. That's sanctification. And thirdly is glorification. Glorification is the final act of God that he will accomplish in our lives the moment we die or when Jesus returns, whereby all of our sin will be permanently removed and we will be perfectly conformed to Christ for all eternity. Another way to say it is this, we have been justified, we are being sanctified, and we will be glorified. And I think this three-dimensional nature of salvation must be clearly understood. And, and furthermore, when it comes to understanding sanctification, specifically that second piece of the salvation process, if you will, a potentially confusing tension exists and a biblical balance must be carefully maintained regarding who is responsible for the spiritual growth process or being conformed to the image of Christ. Someone has said that justification is monergistic or monergistic. In other words, it's solely the work of God. We don't cooperate with God in our justification. There is nothing we can do to be justified or make ourselves right with God. However, sanctification is synergistic. It's partly God's work and partly our work. We do cooperate with God in our sanctification. There are things we must do in order to be sanctified. Now, ultimately, we know that God is the one who sanctifies us by his grace. In fact, Jesus prayed in the high priestly prayer, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verse uh, 23, uh, says it this way. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Um, Hebrews chapter 2 Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 says, um, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. So again, we know that God is the one who ultimately sanctifies us by his grace. Jesus himself said that apart from him, we can do what? Nothing. But that doesn't mean we're to do nothing. We must guard against a passive, kind of let go, let God approach to sanctification where we expect God to transform us into his image without any effort whatsoever on our part. God expects us to actively and aggressively exert ourselves and utilize the means that he's given us to grow spiritually. Granted, God has predestined us to be like Jesus. We know that, Romans 8, 29, for whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. But we aren't supposed to just wait around for God to zap us and make us like Jesus. The Bible commands us to walk, to obey, to flee, to fight, to wrestle, to stand firm, to resist, to run, to strive, to yield, to work, to toil, to kill, to labor, to present, to pursue, to press on, to put off, to put on, to deny, to die, to follow. And all of these action commands, I guess, could be summarized in Hebrews 12, 14, 
where the writer says, pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. We're commanded to pursue, to actively pursue sanctification, being conformed to the image of Christ, being set apart from sin unto Christ. And if we don't do that, if we don't pursue that, we won't see the Lord. In other words, sanctification, our being sanctified is evidence that we have been justified. Why? Because whoever God justifies, he also, what? Sanctifies. It's a package deal. We need to see it all together and that he will ultimately glorify us. He who began a good work in us will carry it to completion. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 talks about that. But the point is simply this. We need to apply some sanctified sweat in our personal pursuit of Christ-likeness. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, another passage you could turn to with me. Philippians chapter 2, this is a critical text to help us with this balance. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, based on everything we we know that Paul wrote about salvation being a free gift of God based on what he's graciously done for us through the personal work of Christ rather than something that we earn through our own work and effort. We know in these verses he was clearly referring to here when he said work out your salvation. Probably a better translation would be to work out your what? Sanctification. Work out your sanctification with fear and trembling. But notice he says, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God causes us to grow through the means of grace. He's provided us to grow. We control the effort. He controls the results. And guess what? That means he gets all the glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. We just sang uh, about this verse. We sang this verse, whether you realize it or not. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored, I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So the question is, who is responsible for our sanctification? Is it God or is it us? What's the answer? Yes. (laughs) Sanctification is a joint venture between God and us. And one of the most helpful things I ever read to kind of help me understand this this, uh, this, this balance, this, this, this tension, this joint venture um, was an illustration in Jerry Bridges' book, The Pursuit of Holiness, that I read years ago. We just recently read it again uh, in Ironman. But he gives this illustration about a farmer. Listen to how, he, how he, 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 he says it. He says, The farmer plows his field, sows the seed, and fertilizes and cultivates, all the while knowing that in the final analysis he is utterly dependent on forces outside of himself. He knows he cannot cause the seed to germinate, nor can he produce the rain and sunshine for growing and harvesting the crop. For a successful harvest, he is dependent on these things from God. Yet, the farmer knows that unless he diligently pursues his responsibilities to plow, plant, fertilize, and cultivate, he cannot expect a harvest at the end of the season. In a sense, he is in a partnership with God, and he will reap its benefits only when he has fulfilled his own responsibilities. Farming is a joint venture between God and the farmer. The farmer cannot do what God must do, and God will not do what the farmer should do. Isn't that helpful? So the bottom line here is that God is sovereign, but we are responsible. And Paul began this letter, or excuse me, Peter started this letter by emphasizing God's sovereignty in our salvation. And if you remember, we looked at specifically at verses 1 through 4, where it says in verse 1 that we have received a faith of the same kind as ours, as Peter was saying. We have been granted everything we need for life and godliness, verse 3. We've also been granted all these precious and magnificent promises. We've also been, uh, become a partaker of a divine nature. And so it's, it's all about what God has done to save us. But now in this next section, verses 5 through 11... He exhorted his readers to take responsibility for their sanctification. 
And he talks about adding to their faith or supplying uh, to their faith. And so in verses one through four, Peter explained how God has sovereignly granted everyone who truly knows Jesus Christ everything we need to live a godly life that is pleasing to him. And we just simply said, we titled the message of, for verses one through four, is just Jesus is all we need. He's enough. And, and that really lay, lays the perfect foundation for these exhortations that we're going to look at this morning. Those of us who have come to Christ must make every effort to become like Christ. Did you hear that? All of us who have come to Christ must make every effort to become like Christ. And by the way, that's the greatest evidence that we are in Christ. Again, just because Jesus is all we need doesn't mean that there is nothing we need to contribute to the process of our spiritual growth. We have a role to play in our sanctification. We need to want to change and grow. We need to be committed to change and grow. And we need to make every effort to change and grow. And the fact that Jesus is all we need makes it all possible, right, for us to fulfill our role, which Peter explained here in verses 5 through 11. And so what I want us to see this morning are five aspects of sanctification that we must understand and apply in order to grow in Christ and to live an effective and productive life for Christ. Five aspects of sanctification that we must understand and apply in order to grow in Christ and live an effective and productive life for Christ. So first of all, let's look at the exhortation to sanctification. The exhortation to sanctification. Notice verse five, now for this very reason also. You say, for what reason? Well, because we are in Christ. And because we have a new nature to work with. We have God's power to rely on. We have God's promises to hope in. We are able now to grow spiritually and be a useful, fruitful tool in the hands of God. Notice he says, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith supply. Stop there. So notice faith is not one of the virtues that we must supply. It's actually the foundation on which this, the rest of this list of seven virtues uh, Comes okay, so there's not eight. There are not eight virtues here. There's seven with a foundation, and we are granted faith as a gift from God. That's not something we bring to the table. God brings it to the table. He He grants us faith. Um, these are not things that we add to our faith in Christ in order to be saved. Again, the assumption is we already have the faith. We're already saved. And, and so Peter was clearly referring to sanctification here. Uh, God supplies us the gift of faith. He grants us the faith, but we must grow that faith. We must be diligent, he says. Um, applying all diligence. He uses the same word uh, in, in verse 10. Be all the more diligent to make certain of his calling and choosing you. Chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. I think the ESV says it this way, make every effort. We need to exert ourselves to grow in Christ, to become more like Christ. And the word supply here, he says, applying all diligence in your faith, supply was used to describe a benefactor. Uh, this is back in, 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 in uh, Peter's day, in the Greek here. That it was a benefactor who would donate money to fund a player production. And so the idea here is someone that, that, that generously and partic generously participates in a very costly way. And so in light of God's generous and costly gift of salvation, when it comes to our sanctification, we are called to respond by participating and cooperating in a generous and costly way. So this is the exhortation to sanctification. Let's look secondly at the progression of sanctification. And here, notice Peter exhorted his readers to add to their faith that was given to them by God by growing and maturing in seven spiritual characteristics that should be manifested in the life of every true believer. And, and I, I think you'll notice here 
that these are not just seven separate standalone characteristics. They are clearly connected. They build on one another and could be likened to seven stepping stones or, or rungs on a ladder or steps in a stairway. That's why uh, I titled this message A Stairway to Heaven. And it seems that Peter was implying here the progressive nature of the sanctification process, that it happens in stages. It happens you know, one step at a time. It's not an, an immediate once, one act, boom, you're sanctified. No, that's not how it happened. And so we, that's why we often refer to, you hear it referred to as progressive sanctification. And, and these seven virtues or characteristics summarize what a godly life looks like. Remember in verse 3, he said that God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. In other words, we have everything we need in Christ to live a godly life. What does that godly life look like? Well, it looks like this. Number one, uh, moral excellence. Moral excellence, which describes that which is praiseworthy or honorable. It means that you do the right thing, regardless of what others do. It means you have the courage to stand up for what is right. It means that you live a moral, upright life, moral excellence. And then he says, add to moral excellence, knowledge. And if you remember, knowledge is one of the key words used multiple times in this letter. Um, it's used different ways, however. Uh, Peter was not referring here to the personal relation, relational knowledge like he was in verses 2 and 3 where he talks about um, our knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Um, he says it again through the true knowledge of him. Uh, verse 8, we're going to see it again in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here he was talking about knowing Jesus personally, having, per, having a personal relationship with Jesus. Not just knowing about Jesus, but knowing Jesus. Here, he was talking about more practical knowledge. In other words, being able to distinguish between what is true and what is false, what is uh, discerning between what is right and what is wrong, and, and what is helpful and what is hurtful. And obviously, the best way to grow in this kind of knowledge is studying God's Word, privately, personally, and also corporately, like we're doing right now. We are growing right now in knowledge as we study God's Word together. So we need to be meditating on the Scriptures in our, in our own quiet times, but we also need to be coming and discussing it with others, talking about it with others. That's why we make such a big deal about grow groups and sermon application because one of the best ways to help us apply Scripture is to talk about it and to hear other people talk about it. And it's, hey, what did you get out of the sermon and what are you gonna do about it? And this is what I got out of it. And this is what I'm gonna do about it. And, and it really stimulates one another to love and good deeds when it comes to growing in knowledge. Well, to that knowledge, we also have to add self-control Self-control, which is the inner strength to control your passions and your cravings rather than being controlled by them. We are not to be enslaved by anything. We are to exercise self-mastery in every area of our lives. And whether that's eating or drinking or sleeping or, or um, working or your time in prayer, or your Bible study. We, we are, we're to, to learn to live a disciplined, balanced life in a very overindulgent world and learn to say no to our fleshly desires. Peter talked, or excuse me, uh, Paul talked a lot about uh, self-control. Love to use the analogy of an athlete. Uh, 1, Corinthians 5, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 25, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Paul also told us that uh, in Galatians 5.23 that, the, the, that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, right? It's the last one on the list. Uh, Proverbs 25.28 says that, that, a, that, a, that a man or a person without self-control is like a city without walls, which, by the way, back then was the worst-case scenario to, to, for you to live in a city without walls because anything could attack you at any time, any could, anything could leave, you'd lose thing, things anytime, and so you needed a wall to protect you, and self-control, in, in a sense, serves, us, serves like a wall to protect us. And, and so self-control has to do with how we deal with the pleasures of life, whereas perseverance, the next characteristic, has to do with how we deal with the pressures of life. And so he says to, to add to your self-control perseverance, or as the ESV says it, steadfastness, 
which is also mentioned in verse 17 of chapter 3. You therefore, beloved, knowing this, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. So the idea here is staying under some pressure without giving in or giving up. Patiently enduring persecution and faithfully pressing on in the midst of adversity and, and, and difficulty. Turning obstacles in your path into stepping stones for spiritual growth. When sin overtakes us, we don't let it derail us for very long. We get right back on track as soon as possible. And no matter what happens to us, we just keep on going until Christ comes or until he calls us home. Turn back just a couple pages to James. comes right before 1 Peter. James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance or perseverance. And let endurance or perseverance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We talked about Job earlier in the service, James chapter 5, verse 11. We count those blessed who endured, persevered. You have heard of the endurance or perseverance of Job, and you have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Years ago, somebody made the comment to me, and I've never forgot it, that Christians in the U.S. pray that God would lighten our load. Whereas Christians who live in more challenging places around the earth pray that God would strengthen their back. Totally different perspective. Right? We just went, oh, Lord, don't put it, you know, don't put any more on us we can. And, and the people in other parts of the world are like, Lord, I, I trust you. You're never going to put more on me than I can. So just strengthen my back. Strengthen my back. What a great perspective. And then to perseverance, we're to add godliness, which... Peter's already mentioned in verse 3, right, that we have everything we need um, pertaining to, uh, to us, everything pertaining to life and godliness. Chapter 3, uh, verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Godliness is really just God-likeness. It, it's, it's learning to think like God and talk like God and act like God. I found myself praying here recently more and more as I'm heading to a meeting to, to meet with somebody or whatever, uh, even getting up here to preach, I'll pray a simple prayer. God, put your thoughts in my mind, put your words in my mouth, and put your affections in my heart. In other words, I want to be like you. I want to be like you to this person or this group of people. We should be a reflection of God to others. It should be obvious to others that we are God's children. And that's what Jesus said would happen if we did stuff like love our enemies. Luke chapter 6, verse 35, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. In other words, you'll prove that you truly are a child of God. Why? For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. So the family resemblance should be unmistakable. We should be a chip off the old block, as they say, right? We should um, want to be and be like God. And if it helps, the opposite of godliness is being ungodly or unlike God, which we're going to find was what characterized the false teachers in chapter 2. They were ungodly. You could also say that godliness is synonymous with Christ-likeness. In other words, if you, if you really want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus was the perfect example of godliness. Uh, he was God in a human body. John 1.18 talks about that, no, that no one has seen God, but we, we saw God in Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Colossians 2.9 talks about you know, all the fullness of deity dwells in Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, I love how the writer says it. He says in verse 3, that Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. 
So if you want to be like God, be like Jesus. And then he says, add to godliness, brotherly kindness. The word here is Philadelphia, which is the word used to describe brotherly love, um, love within a family. And so as members of God's family, this is how we should relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ. You might remember from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. Jesus said this is how people will know that we are Christians. Not that we love them, but that we love what? Each other. Lo, those people get along so well. How is that? A bunch of sinners under one roof and they, they seem to really love each other. And, and work out their differences. How, what, what's the deal? Well, they must be Christians. Hebrews 13.1 tells us to let the love of the brethren continue. So we have brotherly kindness or brotherly love. And then, and then it's just love. Add to that just love. And this is the supreme virtue here. It's the word agape in the Greek, which is the selfless, sacrificial love that God displayed towards us when he sent his son to die for us. John 3, 16, for God so agape the world that he gave his only begotten son. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we know from 1 John chapter 4, we looked at that last week, that we are to love others the way God has loved us. God wants us to show the same kind of love towards other people in this world that he has shown to us. And this love, of course, is not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's a choice. Love requires action. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, right? That beautiful description of love. Those are all verbs there. The things that love is, the things that love does. And, of course, it's a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is, verse 1 leading the list, is love. So these seven virtues should be present and becoming more and more evident in the life of every Christian. And let me, again, just remind you, it's impossible for us to manufacture these seven qualities on our own. The Holy Spirit must produce them in us. And so the majority of these we see somewhere mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament, and, and they're linked with the Spirit of God providing these or, or producing these. So, there you have the progression of sanctification. And thirdly, let's look at the motivation for sanctification. The motivation for sanctification. Notice verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, here's the reason why we need to supply to our faith these seven things. He says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. First and foremost, I think what Peter was saying here is that it proves that you're truly saved. That all that you're doing, um, you know, reading your Bible, praying, giving money to church, coming to church, talking about spiritual things, doing spiritual things, none of it's useful or unfruitful. That you're the real deal. That you're truly saved. But the, again, the idea here is that there, there should be no one who's claiming to be a Christian that's kind of just standing still in the Christian life. We're either advancing or we're declining. There's no neutral. And, and failure to grow in these areas and failing to develop these characteristics leads to some bad things. Uselessness, unfruitfulness, Next verse, we're going to see blindness, short-sightedness, and forgetfulness. So he says, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The key to living an effective and productive life as a Christian is to be constantly growing and changing. The more godly, the more mature and Christ-like you are, the more useful a tool you can be in the hands of the Lord. I love Robert Murray McShane's exhortation to a guy that was being ordained. He simply said, a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. The more changes you experience in your life, I think the more God can use you to change the lives of others. I love 
the title of Paul Tripp's book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand. It's a great title, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand. And the subtitle is even better, People in Need of Change Helping People in Need of Change. And so the more changes that we experience in our lives, uh, the more we're able to help others experience those same changes in their lives. But if we don't know how to change, if we're not changing, we don't have much to share with somebody else who really needs to change too. Most of my counseling that I do is just helping people work through issues in, not, in, my, in their lives, obviously based on what the scripture teaches, but also by my own example of saying, hey, this is how I'm, I'm, I've either worked through it or I'm still trying to work through it. And we can work on it together. But if, if, if you're not growing in those areas, you've got nothing to say. You got, you, you, you're, you're, not, you're, you're useless to that person, to, for God to use to help that person. Notice verse 9, he says, For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. A person who is blind can't see at all. A person who is short-sighted can't see what lies off in the distance. And a person who's forgetful can't see what lies behind him. And so this person is in a mess. He can't see. In other words, he's unable to accurately discern his true spiritual condition. And I think that Peter was referring to someone who, who really makes no effort to grow spiritually, and, and, and so they've lost sight of their heavenly calling. You forgot why you're here. And the things of the world have consumed your attention, and it's caused the glories of heaven to fade and make you forget that, that, that you ultimately belong to an age to come, that this is not why we're here, the 70, 80, whatever years that we live on this planet. It's not what life's all about. And so I think this verse describes a person who lives for the present without keeping eternity in view. And they're so preoccupied with material things that they lose sight of spiritual things. And, and again, they're unable to accurately discern their true spiritual condition. And so they've forgotten why God saved them. And as a result, they resort to their old way of life before, coming, before becoming a believer and they start toying with the sins that used to characterize their lives before they made a profession of faith in Christ. And consequently, they forfeit their assurance. John MacArthur said it this way, such a believer's sins makes him unable to be confident that he was cleansed and rescued from his former life. He cannot be certain if he has been truly saved because he does not see an increase of virtue and usefulness in his life. Spiritual forgetfulness leads to the repeating of old sins and it robs such Christians of their assurance. And I think that's why Peter went on to say in the next verse, verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. And we could call this the verification of sanctification. The verification of sanctification. And notice he, he mentions two facets of God's plan of salvation, the, the, the calling and the choosing. He's talking about the doctrine of election there and the doctrine of the effectual call. And, and the call, our calling, is based on our choosing. Election refers to God's sovereign choice of those who will be saved. And call refers to his action in time by which that choice is made evident. So election took place before time began and eternity passed. The call takes place the moment we're converted. And by the way, God has no doubts whether or not you're saved. And apparently Peter didn't have any doubt because he refers to them here in verse 10 as brethren. But I think Peter knew that the false teachers had either begun to attack or would attack the faith of those that he was writing to, and he wanted them not to doubt their salvation. And so he wanted them to be sure that their faith was valid. He wanted them to be sure. He was sure. He wanted them to be sure. So he challenged them to verify that they were truly saved. He, he didn't want them to waver in the assurance of salvation. And so when we are growing and when we're developing and manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, 
that, that is unmistakable evidence that we're truly saved. A holy, godly life proves that we are one of God's chosen people. I think the litmus test that we've been born again is that we are growing slowly and surely. Our life is changing. We see changes in our lives. Not necessarily all at once. Not necessarily overnight, right? But slowly, gradually, progressively, we see our lives changing and we're becoming less and less like our old selves and more and more like Jesus. Listen, where there is spiritual birth, there will be spiritual growth. And if there is no growth, that indicates there's been no what? Birth. So that's the verification of sanctification. And finally, look at the anticipation of sanctification. The anticipation of sanctification. And notice how Peter mentioned two results or rewards of growing in Christ, one in this life and one in the life to come. We, we get assurance now, we gain assurance now, and we gain entrance later. Notice the end of verse 10. For as long as you practice these things... In other words, this is something that you're doing on, an, on a regular basis. You're practicing these things. We're talking about um, moral excellence and, and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. You're practicing these things. They're a part of your life. You will never stumble. Now, Peter wasn't talking about, well, that means you won't lose your salvation. He's talking about Stumbling into sin, perhaps, or disgrace, or, or a season of disuse. I think if we fail to progress or practice these things, we are in danger of becoming disqualified for his service. And Peter was a, a reassuring those who continue to grow spiritually that they would travel the path to heaven with sure-footed confidence and, and, and would never fall away from the faith. They would never apostatize. They would never deconstruct Again, it doesn't mean that we'll never sin. Since the Bible never promises us that kind of perfection this side of heaven. But I think it means we'll avoid being led astray by false teachers. Essentially, our safety on the long march to heaven is guaranteed. We could call this the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints. Amen? But that's not all. Not only can we count on getting to heaven, we can count on receiving a rich welcome when we get there. Notice verse 11, for in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Does that word sound familiar? That's the same word that Peter said in verse five that we are to supply to our faith that God give, has given to us Moral excellence, knowledge, and on and on. So the word supply really forms the bracket between or around uh, verses 5 through 11. And so Peter was saying, listen, if you supply these things to your faith, then God in turn will supply this glorious entrance into, into heaven. Again, Peter wasn't saying that we can earn our way to heaven by our diligence and human effort. The only way to get to heaven is by placing our faith solely in the work that Christ has accomplished for us. But when we add or supply these qualities to the faith that God gives us, God will add or supply a wonderful homecoming celebration for us. That word entrance there, in Peter's day, the Greeks would use that phrase to describe the lavish welcome that uh, Olympic winners were given when they returned home after the Olympic Games. And likewise, we will be given a hero's welcome in heaven. Now, think with me about this for a second, because this might get a little bit... Um, confusing, and I don't want it to be, 
While every true believer will go to heaven when they die, some will experience a more elaborate welcome than others. Think with me about this, okay? When, when, when we all get to heaven, we're just going to be pumped to be there because we all know we don't deserve to be there, right? And, and uh, you know, for all the times we've forsaken the Lord and all the things we did to deserve his wrath and he let us come to heaven, we're going to be like, hey, I am so thankful I'm here. We're going to be rejoicing, right? All the, all the tears will be wiped away. We get to experience the joys of heaven. But it seems here that there's something special in store for those who don't just come to Christ, kind of claim their get-out-of-hell-free card. <laughs> they never care to grow um, beyond that. And so they remain a baby Christian who never progresses beyond drinking milk to eating the meat of the word. I don't think they're going to be rewarded like those who come to Christ and, and, and who passionately pursue becoming like Christ every day of their life and, and faithfully serve him and humbly seek to bring him glory through their lives. Now, where I'm getting this from is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You might need to turn back there just so you make sure I'm not making this stuff up. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul was rebuking, essentially rebuking the Corinthian believers that they were babies, baby believers. They were believers. He calls them brethren. Could not, I couldn't speak to you, brethren, as spiritual men, but as men of flesh, as, the, as infants, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, nor you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able, for you are so fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are, not, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? And so they were bickering among themselves. Well, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. And, and uh, aren't we just mere men? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything but God causes the growth. And so he was kind of, playing referee there in the church in Corinth, and they were all kind of saying, well, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Peter. And some were even saying, well, I'm of Jesus. And they were just showing how immature they were. And then notice how he goes on here. He says, according to the grace of God, this is verse 10, was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, verse 12, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. Now, don't think that what Paul was saying is that there's going to be some people that just kind of sneak into heaven by the hair of their chinny-chin-chin. You know, they just barely made it. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about when we get to heaven, we are going to be rewarded according to our works. Um, we're there. We didn't get there by our works. We got there through Christ's work. But then all the works we did while we were a Christian, we're going to be rewarded for those things. Look at chapter 4, 4 verse 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will bring both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. In other words, it's not just that you did a lot of stuff. Why did you do all that stuff, right? That's gonna be what the fire tests is our motives for why we did what we did. And so my question is this. Based on where you're at in your relationship with Christ and the level of your commitment to be like Jesus and your conformity to Jesus, when you get to heaven, will you enter heaven with fanfare or as though through fire? With fanfare or as though through fire? Again, our growth in godliness does not cause us to be saved, but it proves that we are saved. 
We don't earn our way to heaven by growing in these areas, but our growth serves as evidence that we are on our way to heaven. So if someone claims to be a Christian, but their character and their conduct doesn't reflect the qualities mentioned here in this passage, then they are likely deceived and headed for hell. You may remember last week I shared the story from Pilgrim's Progress about Christian and ignorance and what their experience was like when they made it to the gates of heaven. And, and Christian was welcomed in by these shining ones and uh, he was introduced to all the Old Testament saints and it just had a glorious um, entrance into heaven. Whereas ignorance kind of got a, a boat ride over the river, right? Got, got, to, got to heaven real easy, uh, if you will. Got to the gates of heaven real easy. Uh, ferried across by vain hope. And when he got there, he's like knocking, looking around. Hey, how do I get into this place? And the king says, hey, see that guy? Take him where he belongs. And they took him and they put him down some hole, which was a picture of hell. Um, and he was shocked because he thought he was good to go. Well, if you see no changes in your life and you have no concerns about that, then you should question if you're really saved, if you really are a true Christian. But if by the grace of God you do see changes in your life, that should give you confidence that you are a true Christian. And again, it's both our profession of faith, objective evidence or assurance, and our progression in faith, that's subjective assurance or subjective evidence, right? That's how you know you're a true believer. Not only did you make a profession of faith, but you are progressing in your faith. That's how you know you're saved. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this text that's really straight to the heart, and it has a lot for us to consider here and, and analyze and examine uh, our own lives in comparison to what this text says. And so would you, your spirit help us to do that, just to be honest with ourselves and honest with you. And Lord, if there's someone here that, that, that needs to come to Christ, I pray that you would accomplish that. By the power of your spirit, you would grant them genuine repentance and faith. And Lord, for those that already know Christ, they've already come to Christ, Lord, would you use this message to help them become like, more like Christ. We pray this in his name, amen.